What an awesome story. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And Jesus reaches out his hand and he pulls Peter back up. And uh, there's so many lessons we can learn from that in our own lives, aren't, aren't there? I think most especially one of the things we can learn from Peter is anytime we begin to, dr- begin to drown or sink, uh, don't wait around with your prayers. Cry out to the Lord immediately and he will be there to reach out his hand. Let's bow and let's pray as we enter God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that it is to us life. It is uh, the very words that you would have us hear. And so we thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you would translate these words to our hearts exactly where we are this morning. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to receive, and that you would give us the willingness to live out exactly what you would have us take away this morning. So speak through this word, through me, your servant, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today we are continuing in the Gospel of Mark, into part 13, entitled, The Day Jesus Got Mad. A writer named Jim Taylor tells the following story about his friend named Ralph Milton. One morning, Ralph woke up at 5 a.m. to a noise that sounded like someone repairing boilers on his roof. It was so loud his whole house was shaking. Still in his pajamas, he went into the backyard to investigate what this racket could possibly be. And there he found a little old woodpecker on his TV antenna, just pounding its little brains out on the metal pole, in his words. Well, the angry angry now at this little creature that could somehow make such a large racket who had ruined his sleep at 5 a.m., he picked up a rock and chucked it at the woodpecker. Well, he of course missed the woodpecker and the rock sailed right over his house where he then heard a distant crash as it hit his car's windshield in the driveway beyond. Well, then in utter disgust, Ralph took a vicious kick at a clod of dirt only to remember, just as his foot struck the rather hard clod of dirt, that he was still barefoot. Well, then, howling in pain and now hopping about on one foot, he promptly tripped and fell backwards straight into a rose bush. <laughs> now, one of these sort of comedic chains of events where anger left unchecked can begin to quickly spiral out of control and lead sometimes to very painful outcomes. Now, anger is, of course, an emotion. It's a powerful emotion. And anger is, to our emotions, what gasoline is to a sputtering fire. You know, at one moment, that fire is, looks like it might even be about to go out. And so you're like, oh, splash a little gas on there. And you, you grab that jerry can, and you just throw one shot on there. And suddenly, a little sputtering flame has jumped up six feet in the air and singed your eyebrows. <laughs> I may or may not be speaking from personal experience on that one. Have you ever experienced anger like that? No one wants to put up their hand. No one wants to admit to it, right? Well, I will. I'll admit to it. I've experienced anger like that because, you know what, we all have. We've all experienced that that flame, that surge that anger gives to our emotions When in an instant, it flares up within us. And the reason I'm so confident that we've all experienced it is because it's in fact one of the very first emotions that as children, we learn to express with great skill and without even anyone having to teach us. 
right? Do you have to teach a toddler how to have a temper tantrum? No, you don't. It comes naturally. The unnatural part, and the part that often requires a great deal of instruction and teaching and discipline, is to learn how to teach that same child or to teach ourselves how to control that anger rather than letting that anger control us. Now, while many terrible and evil things have been done in this world because of anger, the Bible teaches us that the emotion of anger in and of itself is not a sin. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, the Apostle Paul makes this distinction when he tells us, In your anger, do not sin. So here, Paul is saying that you can become angry, very angry, but still not sin in that anger. Because he's instructing, in your anger, do not sin. So there's a distinction between the emotion of anger that we feel and the sinful words or actions that it may fire up within us to carry out in our anger. So this means that while we cannot always control whether we become angry, we are still to control and are responsible for what we do in our anger. This distinction is very important for us to understand, especially when we consider that there are multiple examples in Scripture where God himself becomes angry. Now, in today's Scripture passage in Mark chapter 3, we will see one of the rare times where the Lord Jesus himself became angry. And I invite you to turn there with me this morning, Mark chapter 3 and verse 1. There in verse 1 I'll read, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Now, the man with a shriveled hand, we don't know anything about his backstory. Was he born that way? Uh, was it some injury that perhaps caused his hand to be in this deformed state? Was it perhaps a disease? Again, we don't know. All we know for certain that it was a long-standing handicap for which there was no chance for improvement or healing in his time or in his day. A little bit more insight is given by Dr. Luke in his parallel account because he also points out that it was the man's right hand, not his left, but his right hand. Now, that may seem like a trivial detail, but in Jewish thinking and in the Jewish mind, the right hand specifically was a symbol of power and strength. And the Bible repeatedly speaks of God sustaining us with his mighty right hand. And also that the place of honor is at the right hand. And that is where Jesus, in fact, now sits at the right hand of the Father. We also see in Jewish customs, it was the right hand that was used for greetings and for bestowing blessings. Uh, the, uh, the story in Genesis where the hands are switched at the end, that the right hand blessing was given to one and the left to the other. This is a, a good example of how the right hand was seen as the superior hand for blessing. There were also, let's say, sanitary reasons for this, because the right hand was considered the clean hand, because a, Jew, a good Jew only ate with his right hand, and so with apologies to all the Southpaw lefties out there, the left hand was considered the unclean hand because it was used for certain personal sanitation purposes, if you catch my meaning. So here we see that this man's right hand was withered. So he would have been considered, in the Jewish mind, not just physically handicapped, 
but they would have seen it as a spiritual handicap because a withered right hand would have certainly been seen as some sort of punishment from God that this man deserved having this withered right hand. And so we can well imagine that this man with the withered hand having, having had all of these things thrown at him in his life, we can well imagine his excitement when he very, the very first time he heard about Jesus, this miracle-working rabbi who can heal people. He, he must have heard how he had cast out a demon in a synagogue on a Sabbath, no less, how he had cleansed a leprous man and touched him, how he had made that paralytic man to walk again who his friends had lowered him down through the roof, and the countless other miracles by this point that he had done. The news must have spread like wildfire from village to village, and though we aren't told this man's hometown, wherever he first heard about Jesus, suddenly this man would have had hope again that perhaps this withered right hand wasn't his final condition in life. And so imagine how his heart must have then leapt and been pounding in his chest the moment that Jesus walked into that packed synagogue on that Sabbath morning. Because, of course, that man was there anticipating something good happening. Something powerful in his own life personally. But there were other people there in that synagogue that day. Because that man wasn't the only one watching for Jesus. There were others watching with very, very different motives. Verse 2. Some of them, this is the Pharisees, of course, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, you may recall from last week's sermon that the issue of Jesus and his disciples violating the Sabbath law by picking grain and feeding themselves was clearly a very big deal for the Pharisees. It's also evident that Jesus' declaration to them in response to their accusation of, why are you allowing your disciples to break the law of the Sabbath? And Jesus had emphatically said to them, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. It was no mistaking that he was referring to himself as the Son of Man, and that as the Son of Man, he was the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, this only riled them up further. And from this point forward, it almost appears that Jesus is intentionally riling them up. Jesus is intentionally doing things to provoke the Pharisees, knowing the hardness of their hearts. For the way that Mark now describes the scene as it unfolds, we get the picture that the Pharisees were deliberately keeping a close eye on not just Jesus, but the man with the shriveled hand, knowing that the man would seek to be healed and that Jesus always seemed to be ready to do so. But if Jesus healed on the Sabbath, well, in their minds, that was most definitely work, and they could then condemn him for doing so. So in other words, as Mark paints this scene for us, it's a trap. Some scholars even wonder whether the man with the shriveled hand was planted there by the Pharisees, knowing that Jesus was going to come there this morning. Did they strategically make sure he had a front row seat, knowing that Jesus was a healer? Now, isn't it interesting at this point that they've already conceded the fact that Jesus can undoubtedly heal? They've already conceded this. It's built into the argument here that they're like, we're going to catch him in the act of healing on the Sabbath. 
There was no argument left of whether or not he could do so. Now, at this point, you would really think that if they've conceded the fact that this man has power from heaven to heal, maybe we ought to take him seriously. Maybe we ought to consider his claim that he is, in fact, the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath. But no, they've already conceded he can heal. Let's catch him healing in an improper way on the improper day. And we will trap him. And we can then accuse him. And we can get rid of him. Now, of course, as Jesus walks into this scene, he knows immediately that it's a trap. He can see all the players, and remember, he already knows their hearts. But rather than avoid the trap or just walk away that morning, he deliberately walks right into it. Mark chapter 3, verse 3 continues, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. So think about this for a moment. It'd be like if he was sitting in the back row, it'd be like, you know what, come on down. Come right up here. We're going to make you the object lesson for this morning's sermon, right? He wasn't going to do this secretly. This was going to be public for everyone to see, not a private healing, in your face, specifically for the sake of the watching Pharisees. And so the man comes up to the front, and Jesus then points probably straight at those Pharisees, and he asks them this question in verse 4. Which is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remain silent. Now those Pharisees knew the answers to Jesus' questions. They were rhetorical, of course, but still they refused to give them. They refused to speak. For you see, in the Torah, it taught that if someone's life was in danger on the Sabbath, not only was it permissible to break the Sabbath law in order to save them, but it was commanded. Isn't that interesting? If someone's life was in direct danger on the Sabbath, not only was the Sabbath law, you know, it's okay if you break the law, it was commanded. There was a higher law that life comes above the Sabbath. So examples of this would be someone's drowning and you have to run and work swimming hard to then carry the burden to pull them to shore. If that's on the Sabbath, you are commanded. That is the higher command. If, if a woman were to go into labor to deliver a child on that day, you would help them. This is a higher command. And the command in Hebrew is called pikuash nefesh, which uh, directly translated means saving a life. So the law of Pekuesh Nefesh states that the preservation of human life is a higher priority than the observance of the Sabbath law. And so this is exactly what Jesus was directly referring to when he asked them the question. Notice the, the phrasing, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or evil, to save a life or to kill? So he's referring directly to Pekuesh Nefesh. He's turned the tables on the Pharisees now because they knew this law to the letter. Remember, they are experts in the Mosaic law and in the Torah. And so Jesus is now arguing that healing this man on the Sabbath was not only permissible, but that it was in fact the higher command that the law demanded that this man's life be saved, be healed, that it, that it circumvented, triumphed over the Sabbath law. Now, Jesus poses the question, they know the answer, but they zip it, because they don't want to give it. And so, Jesus knows what's in their hearts at this moment. And this is where everything comes to a head. Because in verse 5, we read, 
he looked around at them in anger. Deliberate, stubborn defiance. Stiff necks, hard hearts. You go back to Exodus and you see that it was these same children of Israel who provoked God's wrath for the same reasons. Hard hearts and stiff necks. It's that moment when God said to Moses, Moses, step aside. It's time. I'm going to wipe them out. This people, I'll raise up another line through you. And, And his anger was kindled because of the hardness of their hearts. How stubbornly they refused to follow him. And here it is again. Jesus is looking at the exact same attitude, the stubbornness of their hard hearts, and the anger flares up within him. Mark continues to say, and he was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Remember, we've already conceded, they had conceded, that Jesus could perform miracles. He could heal. But they stubbornly refused to submit to his lordship. Jesus knew in this moment that these Pharisees weren't the least bit concerned about the man with the shriveled hand. They couldn't care less about him. All they cared about was their personal power and prestige as the religious cops of Israel. They were just like those old rigid wineskins that Jesus had talked about earlier. And they demonstrated that sometimes it is the most outwardly religious people who have inwardly the hardest and most stubborn of hearts. And don't miss this. It made Jesus mad. Now Jesus did not get mad very often. In fact, there were only about three or four times throughout the Gospels that we are told that Jesus became angry, most famously, of course, the the clearing out of the temple. And this is another one of these occasions. And it clearly demonstrates to us just how much it angers God when people practice the outward forms of religion but miss entirely his heart of mercy and compassion for lost and hurting people. Now at this point, Jesus, as the Son of God, in his righteous anger, he could have done any number of things. He could have verbally condemned them. He could have called upon an angel to strike them down right then and there. You know, in a little bit of teaching them a lesson, he could have even shriveled up all of their right hands to see how they liked it. But now instead of doing any of that, don't miss this. Instead of doing something negative in his anger, Jesus did something positive. Verse 5 continues. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Now, what an incredibly miraculous and life-changing moment for that man. Don't lose sight of him in this whole scenario between him and the Pharisees, because here is a man with a need whose life had been deeply affected. Describing this moment, the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, It must indeed have been a very beautiful sight to see that poor, withered, wilted hand fist clenched tightly, and then stretched out before all the people in the middle of the synagogue. Do you not see the blood begin to flow, the nerves gaining power and the hand opening like a reviving flower? Oh, the delight in his sparkling eyes, 
as at first he could only fix them upon the little finger and the thumb to see if they were really and truly alive once more. And then he turned and looked at the Blessed One, the one who had healed him, and seemed anxious to fall down at his feet and to give him all praise. Now, how do you think you would have responded if you were the man with the shriveled hand? How do you think you would have responded if you had just been someone sitting in that synagogue that day to witness all of this? How would you respond if we had, in fact, called someone up to the front for healing and we had seen it with our own eyes? There could be no denying that this had just occurred. The witness, uh, the, the evidence was, was apparent for all to see. There was no denying it. Not even the Pharisees could deny that this man had just been healed. He could now do everything in his life that had been barred from him. He could button buttons, tie laces, swing a hammer, and do all the things which you and I with healthy hands can do without a second thought. But while the now healed man was undoubtedly overjoyed and grateful to Jesus, quite likely tears of joy streaming down his face, the Pharisees are not joyful. In fact, they are now angry. They are furious. So furious that we read in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And so here we see the Pharisees as a perfect example of the wrong use of anger. And we're going to take a moment now to analyze the Pharisees' anger, and then after we'll contrast that against the anger of Jesus. Now the first thing we'll take note of from the anger of the Pharisees is that their anger was selfish. Their anger was selfish. The Pharisees were not concerned about the man with the shriveled hand in the least. They couldn't care less whether he was healed or whether it remained shriveled and useless forever. As I said before, all they cared about was their personal power and prestige. For them, all that mattered was, was that they could maintain their grip on power and lording it over the people. And so for them, all the, 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 in their minds, secondary concerns of mercy and compassion, those all had to bow before their rules and their traditions and their authority. So by Jesus now healing this man on the Sabbath, which in their minds was breaking that law that they were to enforce, they took that as a personal attack against themselves. Because you see, if Jesus could break the Sabbath law and get away with it, flagrantly flaunting it right in their faces in front of all the people to see, while in their minds this undermined their authority, and now it's open season for anyone and everyone to go and just willy-nilly breaking the Sabbath law. And so this is a real hit to their, their power and their hold over the people. This wounded their selfish pride, and as a result, rather than submitting themselves before the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the healer who could do this, no, they went out and began to plot how they could kill him. we got to get rid of him because he's, he's, he's taken away our authority. The people are turning to him and away from us. And so this selfish pride has now caused them to turn to murder. Hatred in their hearts and murder. What a cascade of effects. Are we ever like that? Oh, that's a big question. Maybe not to the degree of the Pharisees, but 
Has there been times where rather than rejoicing that God has shown mercy to someone else, that we got upset? Because, well, he got away with it. He didn't deserve mercy. He deserved a smack. Have you ever been upset about that? Where we take it personally? Because perhaps that person had done something against you or against me, and I wanted them to get what was coming to them, but God showed the mercy instead. Well, the prophet Jonah is a prime example of this. For when God told Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh to repent from their wickedness or be destroyed, Jonah disagreed with God. You see, God thought that the Ninevites could and should be shown mercy if they would but repent. Jonah didn't think so. Jonah thought God was wrong. You see, the Ninevites were Israel's hated enemies, the Assyrian Empire. And so he's like, no, God, you're wrong. I'm going the other way. And so he did. We know the story. God uses the big fish to get Jonah to turn around. And he does. He goes and preaches to Nineveh. And now talk about an unwilling mouthpiece. But he went and he must have really gave it to him, fire and brimstone style. Because he wants them to receive fire and brimstone, remember? But it works. The Ninevites hear the word. They repent. They say, oh, no, we've sinned. And they get in sackcloth and ashes that same day, right up from the lowest to the king himself. And God relents of his wrath. He tells Jonah, I am going to show them mercy. I will not destroy them. And even so, Jonah's like, no, no, they need to be destroyed. And so he goes up on a hill and he watches to see if God might yet change his mind. And you know the story of the vine growing up and then withering. And finally God comes to confront Jonah in his anger. And as he's pouting there, because that vine that had grown up had now withered and the sun was beating down on his head and he's pouting that this vine has, has been destroyed. And God comes to confront him. And in this confrontation, Jonah accuses God of being too merciful. I knew that you are slow to anger, abounding in love and compassion. I knew you were going to let him get away with it. You won't spare them. But God, of course, gets the final word and he shares his heart with Jonah the prophet, and he asks him the question, should I not show mercy to this great city and all of its people right down to the cattle? And that's how the book ends. Sometimes our selfishness, anger and selfishness, we're focusing on ourselves rather than focusing on our great God who delights in showing mercy and compassion, yes, even to our enemies. The Pharisees didn't get that, and they were allowing that anger to boil over and to lead to worse things, which was leading to murder. Now, this leads us into our second point, that the Pharisees' anger turned into plans for taking matters into their own hands. They were in their anger, plotting murder, which in their minds they thought was justified. That this wasn't murder, that this was, this was somehow justified. But one of the most predictable outcomes of the wrong kind of anger is that it tries to hurt the source of its anger. Notice when the Pharisees became angry at Jesus, they start conspiring with the Herodians, who were no friends of the Pharisees. But now suddenly they're like, you know, the, the uh, how does it go? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That was sort of the scenario here now between the Pharisees and the Herodians, that the Herodians, for political reasons, wanted to get rid of Jesus, and, and the Pharisees, for pseudo-religious reasons, wanted to get rid of him, and they said, let's team up, and we will conspire to get rid of him. 
Now, another prime example of anger turning to violence, premeditated violence, is, of course, at the very beginning. Cain offered the wrong type of offering and God rejected it, whereas Abel gave the correct type of offering and God accepted it. And we read in Genesis that at this, Cain became very angry. And God called upon him, just like with Jonah. He calls him out on it. And he says to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And so here we see God once again mercifully presented Cain with a choice. Now notice again, he is very angry, but at this point, God says sin is crouching at your door. Again, there's a distinction between the anger and the sin. At this point, God mercifully gives Cain the option. Receive God's rebuke and correction. Do what is right. Give the prescribed offering that God had clearly instructed him to give. Or reject God's gracious offer to correct his ways and allow his anger to turn against his brother whose offering had been accepted. Well, we all know how Cain chose. For rather than repenting, rather than receiving God's gracious rebuke and correction, he allowed his anger to open the door to sin, which then pounced, and it opened the door to murder, and he went out in the fields, and he struck and murdered his brother Abel in cold blood. The Pharisees were following after their spiritual father, Cain. They were following his example to the letter. As rather than receiving Jesus' merciful correction and rebuke to repent, they became angry to the point that these supposed religious leaders of the hand of the land, the super-duper spiritual ones who, remember, knew the sixth commandment, bang, don't murder. They knew it to the letter. They'd been rehearsing it since they were two years old. Do not murder. This isn't complicated. They are now plotting murder. You see what's, what's going wrong here? It'd be like if the town ministerial, like, you know, some, some guy came into town and started preaching, and we're like, yeah, we're not quite sure about him, so the town ministerial, we get together, and we start plotting murder. Does that seem a little extreme to you? A little crazy? Well, that's exactly the scenario what the Pharisees are doing here. They are literally now in a murder plot. So what about us? Well, if, like me, you grew up with siblings and never fought with them, then it's quite likely that in a fit of anger you have uttered the words, I'll kill you. (laughs) Have you ever... Okay, no one wants to put up their hand for this one, but I will again, I'll do it. I have said those words in anger. And following those words, I have also lashed out with fists in order to inflict pain. However, if also like me, you had parents who corrected that sort of behavior and you matured and you grew up, then you've left that sort of language and the use of physical violence and fists behind you. However, even if we've left physical violence behind us, we can still use our anger to hurt people in other ways, can't we? You know, there's an old saying that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. (laughs) That's one of the biggest lies ever put into a rhyme, isn't it? Words are the most painful. 
Because the Bible, in, in fact, tells us that the tongue is one of the most dangerous instruments in the body. For like a small spark, it can start a great forest fire. And so, too, it is the small instrument of the tongue that we can use to cut people to pieces with our words. And sometimes we do it to the people that we profess to love most in the world. Husbands, wives, you ever cut each other with your tongue, with your words? Ever cut your children, cut your parents, cut your mom and dad, cut your best friend? We've done it, haven't we? In a moment of anger, we use our tongue to cut. That's one way our anger in our anger that we can sin. Another way is that if we can't hurt them with our words, we then will deprive them of our friendship. We withdraw and become cold towards them and say to ourselves, that'll show them. They'll know how angry I am. The elder brother in Jesus' parable did just that. You remember how the story went? For when the prodigal son came home and the elder brother heard about it, he became angry and refused to go in. And even when his father came out and pleaded with him, Come in, greet your long-lost brother. We thought he was dead and he's home again. The brother said, no, he is not getting what he deserves. He does not deserve a party. He deserves wrath and judgment and, and being grounded forever. He doesn't deserve a party. And what about me? You never threw a big party for me. And so here we see that the elder brother thought that he was somehow punishing his younger brother and his father by not gracing him with his presence at the welcome home party. But you see, the only person that he was really punishing and making miserable was himself. And that's the problem with trying to get even. That in our anger, in all these different ways, we try to take matters into our own hands to take vengeance to get even we'll show them we'll hurt them and then they'll know what they did to me and yes in the process we may hurt the other person too but we are hurting ourselves just as much if not more and that is exactly what is happening with the pharisees their anger was selfish and in their anger they used it to try to hurt jesus who was the source of their anger and so now we turn to jesus in contrast and we look at his example of how he responded and how he acted in his anger. Now, I want you to understand that the anger of Jesus was both righteous and good. So let's examine how. First of all, unlike the Pharisees, Jesus' anger was not selfish. You see, Jesus was not angry because they had done something personally to him, though they had, but it wasn't about that. Instead, Jesus was angry at the Pharisees' stubborn hearts that seemed to lack any capacity for mercy or humility. In fact, when you study the life of Jesus, you will never find him becoming angry because of something that people did or said to him personally. Remember, even his most famous example of anger where he physically drove the money changers and the merchants out of the temple... It was on his father's behalf that this is my father's house. And his anger was kindled in defense of his father. That this is his house. This is his house of prayer. Not a house that you've made a den of thieves. Again, it was on his father's behalf that it stirred up his zeal. And his, in his anger, he moved in such a powerful way. It wasn't on his own behalf. It was on the behalf of his father. And here we see it's on behalf 
of this man who they refused to show any mercy to. The greatest example of this is when those same Pharisees finally succeeded in their murder plot. Remember, this is now in process. It's going to take some time. But when they finally succeeded, and there Jesus was hanging unjustly from the cross, and they gloated, and they continued to hurl their insults at him and mocked him. He healed others. Why can't he heal himself? He saved others. Prove you're the Son of Man. Come down off that cross. But even as they did this and they gloated in their triumph, what did Jesus do in response? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Two other instances when Jesus became angry, I've talked about at the temple, his father's house. Jesus simply did not become angry because of personal offense against him, though there were many, many. But those he let, he just seemingly off his back, those he patiently endured, he only became angry for the good and righteous reasons on behalf of others. So what are some examples of becoming angry for good and righteous reasons today? Well, I think there's a pretty long list if we got started. What about the fact that it is legal to murder unborn children in their mother's wombs? Does that make you angry? What about children being kidnapped and exploited in sex trafficking? What about wicked things being done and promoted from high places of authority? Are these things that ought to arouse our righteous anger? Well, the Bible certainly makes clear that these things, along with all wickedness and injustice, arouse God's righteous anger. And so I believe that it is right when they flame up with a righteous anger within us as well. In Abraham Lincoln's biography, Carl Sandburg tells the story of Lincoln when he was a boy. And he arrived in New Orleans after having traveled down the Mississippi River. And as Lincoln and his companions were walking around the city, they came upon the slave market. The first that Lincoln had ever seen, having grown up in the North. Families there, before his eyes, were being torn apart. As their loved ones were put up on the auction block and sold like cattle. Lincoln was enraged and horrified, and he said to his companions that day, If I ever get a chance to hit this thing, I'll hit it hard. And so you see, for Abraham Lincoln, this righteous anger that had been stirred up in him as a boy was used in a properly channeled way as a motivating force for him that when he became the 16th president of the United States, he sought to abolish the practice of slavery. So get angry. But get angry for the right reasons. For if rather than becoming angry with each other over small, rather trivial matters, usually taken at our own, because of our own offense, that I selfishly have somehow been wounded, but instead if we just let those things go like Jesus did, and we instead allow ourselves to have a righteous anger at Satan, and at the evil world at which he is so insidiously ensnaring in so many different ways, and we allow that anger to fuel us into productive ways rather than into destructive ways. To allow us to go into spiritual battle against darkness where we have a great victory yet to win. But of course we must remember in all of this that we are not God 
And so we must remain ever mindful that we are prone to allowing even our righteous anger to be channeled into dangerous and destructive actions if they do not align with God's will. And so we must always follow Jesus' perfect example for us. For remember, instead of doing something negative in his anger, Jesus did something positive. He healed that man. So rather than lashing out and inflicting pain upon others as the Pharisees did, Jesus brought healing to the man, which ironically made the Pharisees even more angry that he would show mercy. But such is the way of Jesus, who said, Bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And following Jesus' way, the Apostle Paul also said in Romans 12, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this example of righteous anger. We thank you, Lord Jesus, even further for your example of how you, you use that righteous anger, not in a destructive way, but in a powerful way to show that your mercy triumphs over all, and that your heart of compassion for people who deserve nothing less than judgment, but you desire to show forgiveness, you desire to show grace. And, O oh Lord, forgive us for being in any way ever like those Pharisees who in our own self-righteousness think, no, but they need to get what they deserve, not recognizing that if the same stick were used for us and we receive what we deserve, well, we would receive wrath as well. And so we pray, O oh Lord, help us to see your heart of mercy. And Lord, help us that if we are to allow anger to be used in any way within us, that it would be righteous anger against the evil and injustice we see in the world. And that, Lord, that we could then allow you by your spirit to channel that in productive ways rather than destructive ways. And, O oh Lord, help us that when that anger is selfish, that in our anger we would not sin, that by your spirit you would give us self-control to, if we can't say anything nice at all, to say nothing at all, to bite our tongues, to not use our words to cut or to deprive other people of our presence in a way to punish in anger, but instead, Lord, help us to be like you, to show mercy and to show grace for recognizing that we ourselves have received mercy and grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the Lord of the Sabbath and you are our Lord. We follow you only, for you alone are worthy of our worship and of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.